Meatballs, meatballs. Meatballs, meatballs. Podcast number 19. This is Meatball Fulton. This is about Ruby 7.5, The Tuca's Tales. It's really a tribute to the composer Tim Clark. I'll explain. Here's the backstory. For the last several years, I wanted to do a bunch of little stories for Ruby, and it would be only Ruby narrating her adventures on different planets, and it would feature Tim's music, so the stories would also be like little songs. Well, it never happened. So when I came up with the idea of having another character with Ruby, someone like the Tuca, and focus on his rather rich and adventurous life, then the story started to come forth. Now here's where Tim comes in. He worked a solid month on the music for the Tuca's Tales, and he did the most incredible music. So instead of my playing complete stories, because they're kind of long for a podcast, I'll play some segments and point out what Tim did. I'll read from the notes Tim sent. In the opening, when Ruby meets the Tuca, Tim said, this one took the longest because nothing I did worked. I decided to use a combination of theremin and English horn playing pretty stereotypical Middle Eastern lines to make it almost, but not quite, a cartoon. I was driving down the street when I saw a sign. The lettering was a kind of pseudo-Arabic scroll. It said, the tickly tentacle. I figured if there's a tentacle, there's probably a tuka. And sure enough, Behind the bar, polishing four glasses at the same time, was the Tuca. Two of his three eyes didn't bother to look up, but it was the third one, the upper eye, the sleepy one that appears bored by everything but never misses anything. That one sleepily looked over at me and then blinked and opened wide. Ruby! What's a Tuca like you doing in a town like this? I thought I'd take a taste of big city life. Oh, yeah? What are you front for this time? Now, now, Ruby. The Tuca has always operated a legitimate establishment. Since when? Since last week. Yeah. <laughs> right. A sad day in Noodle Town. I'm reading from Tim's notes here. This one has a strange combination of tabla, theremin, and a recording of some guy blowing into cardboard tubes. That sound really conjures up the feeling of some kind of steam-powered noodle factory. When Zeta appears, I added some gamelan gongs on the top of everything else. The Tuca took out a pen and began to draw on the bar. He was storyboarding his love life with a female called Storyboard. Here is where we first met. You met over a plate of spaghetti? No, no, this is Noodle Town. Wait a minute. Was she also a Tuca? No, no. She was a Ticka-Ticka-Two. A Ticka-Ticka-Two? Yes, a Ticka-Ticka-Two. Ticka-Ticka-Twos have more tentacles than you. Indeed they do. And you fell for that? She was exquisite. A good hugger. Magnificent. So between the two of you, what was your total tentacle count? Twelve. I'm impressed. We made quite a couple. I'll bet. The Tuca continued drawing panels with wiggly cartoon stick figures and noodles all over the place. Noodle Town was a city of pneumatic noodles. You mean 
Everything was sucked through hollow tube-shaped noodles? That is how they shipped everything, including themselves. The Tuca said that Noodle Town was built on a flat plain. Seen from a distance, it really did look like a pile of spaghetti. But as you approached, and it became larger and larger... I felt as though I were driving into a gigantic plate of rigatoni. At first, the Tuca couldn't understand how people could live among all those noodles. I mean, it's one thing to have freeways passing over and under you, but it's quite another to have noodles running over and under and right through your apartment. Tiny noodles, gigantic noodles, noodles of all sizes, but always the same shape. Because everything was transported through pneumatic noodles, the city was essentially silent. Except for the occasional whoosh of air when something or someone popped out of the end of a noodle. I did not enjoy being transported in a noodle. Even though he rode inside a cylinder, he had a claustrophobic fear he might get stuck somewhere inside a noodle. I felt I was in the belly of a snake. Tukas have a fear of being swallowed by a snake. Why is that? I mean, it'd take a pretty big snake to swallow a tuka. I'll tell you about it sometime. Okay. The tuka went back to storyboarding on the bar. It was here that I met her. What is that? That is where we first met. He had drawn what looked like a pagoda popping up out of a bowl of noodles. That is what we called the pasta pagoda. Seriously? Oh, yes. She was a temple priestess. What religion? Pene. Pene. She was of the Zeta sect. Pene Zeta. I don't believe it. Ruby. In a city built of pneumatic noodles, strange religions do form. So you fell in love with a temple priestess? I did. And it was soon after I began to call her my Zeta. What did she look like? Ah, well, she looked something like this. What is this? This is my Zeta. What the Tuca had drawn looked like a big ball of feathers. I thought she had tentacles. She also had feathers. I take it she tickled your fancy. Did she ever? (laughs) Of course, the story segments aren't going to make much sense because I'm focusing on the music. So, as Tim goes on, he said, Moonless Sonata. After the intro, the Tuca tells about Moonless Sonata. The sounds are an out-of-tune piano on top of strings and a low electronic wash. The piano plays a couple of phrases of Moonlight Sonata to get into the scene. Interesting using this piece for setting a bleak scene, but it really works. So you lost your dough? I lost everything, including my shirt. I was left out on the street with just a dusty fez on my head and a tattered cloak on my back. Sounds sad, Tuka. But even worse, I found myself on Moonless Sonata. I've heard about that place. Whatever you've heard, it's far worse. As the Tuka described it, Moonless Sonata is one sorry city. The moon never shines on Moonless Sonata. It's not a place to be down in the dumps, since it really is a dump. Tell me, Tuca, how did Sonata get such a sweet name? It was named after its founder, Sparky Sonata. It wasn't as lawless as people thought it was, but if you were law-abiding, it 
wasn't a place to do business. The city had what were called virtual laws. Everyone believed there were laws, but since all the laws had been erased by a computer virus, no one knew which laws were real and which were conveniently invented. Whether they were real wasn't as important as the belief that they seemed to be real enough. The inhabitants of Moonless Sonata spent a good deal of their time trying to escape their bleak reality by living in virtual worlds, pleasant places that appeared real. And so to have virtual laws in their real world seemed to make sense. Due to the death of their chief justice, they found themselves needing someone who could administer real, or at least real enough, justice. Virtual justice. Batuka always a good talker, had the presence of someone who knew the law, which was true. He had lived on the other side of it for so long, he considered himself an expert. With a little fangling, I became the chief justice. His physical presence was well suited for being a high judge. He could wield four gavels at the same time. I did not accept bribes. You're kidding. No, no. The thought of being underbribed when I had yet to establish its true value would set a bad precedent. That makes sense. At first, I appeared inscrutably honest. This caused near panic in Moonless Sonata. A contract was taken out to eliminate the Tuca. But the various factions argued amongst themselves over who was going to get the contract. It caused such a dispute, it came before the bench. It ended up for you to decide. Yes, indeed. Since no one knew if the laws were real, you could argue that they weren't. But that wouldn't get you anywhere in front of the Chief Justice, who invented his own laws. So the only way to resolve it was to bribe him. But the Tuca wasn't taking bribes. Not yet. So how did you settle it? The contract taken out on my life? Well... I made certain the trial went on for months. That makes sense. In the meantime, I, of course, began to accept modest gratuities from the various factions. You were accepting bribes to find in favor of whoever it was that would get the contract to eliminate you? I milked it for all it was worth. Now that's the Tuca I love. But finally, I could put it off no longer. I had to make my decision. If you had the final say on what was the law, couldn't you just say anything? I could, but it didn't mean they'd obey the law. So the Tuca decided it was time to get out of town. It wouldn't be easy to disguise himself and sneak out. Tukas do tend to stand out. He knew the moment he gave his decision, he was a dead duck. Okay, I give. What'd you do? I made a giant puppet. Of yourself? Of course. The Tuca made a puppet Tuca that he dressed in his robes and operated from beneath his desk, moving its tentacles this way and that and giving it a voice, of course. As Chief Justice of the High Court of Moonless Sonata, I find in favor of the Mud Weasels. As soon as the gavel hit, the Mud Weasels took out their weapons and let loose. They riddled his puppet full of holes. And so, late one moonless night, I slunk away from that dark city they call Moonless Sonata. Clipper and Snipper 
No, I have something to say about this. It's a story about when the Tuca ran a hedge fund and built the rich by running a Ponzi scheme. And I wrote this about two months before the Madoff hedge fund $50 billion scam hit the news. And when I wrote it, I thought to myself, I hope this doesn't sound too dated because I don't think you can run a Ponzi scheme anymore without getting caught. Ha, huh. right. Now, where the Tuca got the backing to begin a hedge fund, he wouldn't say. What made it especially attractive was the fact that hedge funds are unregulated. And since the super rich want to become super duper rich, it wasn't difficult for his smooth-talking Tuca to prey upon their need for more. The super rich are the most insecure people you'll ever meet, Ruby. The Tuca had a partner. His name was Snipper. The Tuca went by the name of Clipper. Their hedge fund was called Clipper and Snipper. My partner was a crook. No kidding. I knew one day he'd attempt to abscond with the funds, so I kept an eye on him. They set up a Ponzi scheme. That's where the early investors receive very high returns on their investments. The word gets out, and everyone wants to jump in. Of course, they don't know that the money is coming from the later investors. It works. For a while. We had become filthy rich. It was time to prune our hedge fund and get out of town. And finally, one of my favorites, the lost temple of the cross-eyed silver-tongued serpent. Tim says, all kinds of stuff in this one. Start simply with an electric piano and a theremin. When the scene shifts to the jungle, I start a percussion beat and add weird electronic bends along with a very strange Indian bamboo flute. The snakes were done by taking a sample of air being let out of a tire, resampling them at different pitches, laying the samples out on the keyboard, and playing a bunch of different samples at the same time. For the descent into the tunnel, I used a metallic grinding sound with a large pitch bend, which made it get lower and lower. And for the temple, there's a combination of Indian singing voices, chorus, gong, strings, and a big electronic wash. The sound under the goddess is an altered recording of an Indian singer. I was looking for the lost temple of the cross-eyed silver-tongued serpent. I thought you had a fear of snakes. This was before I met the cross-eyed silver-tongued serpent goddess. The Tuca had heard stories about a temple with two giant emeralds in the crossed eyes of a stone serpent. And one day, I came upon a map in an old used scroll shop. The temple had been discovered a long time ago. The explorer had made a map and disappeared. He also told of being swallowed by a serpent, something the Tuca doubted at the time. Doubts are like sprouts. They pop up everywhere, especially in the humid heat of the jungle. And so he set off into the deep, dark heart of the great Zizibus. The map was amazingly accurate. Where X marked the spot, there was a large mound covered by trees and vines. And sure enough, it was the lost temple of the cross-eyed silver-tongued serpent. The temple was covered with carvings of snakes, winding and coiling and striking. And at the top of the temple was a gigantic stone serpent, its mouth open wide. And between its fangs, a stream trickled from its mouth like dripping saliva. And there, glittering in the sunlight that filtered down through the jungle canopy, was a green emerald eye. 
just one eye? Just one, Ruby. How can a snake be cross-eyed with only one eye? I wasn't considering that at the time. The Tuka climbed up the side of the temple and out onto the head of the snake and began to pry the remaining emerald out of its stone eye socket. When he finally popped the eye out and put it in his knapsack, he noticed something strange. The jungle was moving. What do you mean, moving? It was crawling with snakes. (sighs) Far as the eye could see, Ruby. As the Tuka described it, there were thousands, maybe millions of snakes. Snakes of all sizes, but pretty much all the same shape. They wiggled and writhed their way up to the temple and then... stopped. They raised their heads. And hissed. The jungle sounded like the air was being let out of it. That was the longest and loudest hiss I have ever received. And then the snake started forward, slithering up the sides of the temple. It was all that slithering that gave me the idea to slither myself. The Tuka was sitting on the head of the stone serpent god. He lowered himself into the open mouth, ducked beneath the stone fangs and crawled down inside the serpent. It was so slimy. And we'll hop ahead here where the Tuka meets the snake goddess. And then he heard a voice. It was the voice of the snake goddess. Oh, can I do the snake goddess? Be my guest. Who are you? I am the Tuka. Where is my emerald eye? Your eye? I have no idea. Have you come to steal my other eye? Heaven forbid. I am but a mere scholar, a lowly assistant professor of serpentine studies. You have defiled the kingdom of the serpent goddess. Oh, well, I I meant no disrespect. Just show me the way out and, and I'll be on my way. I cannot see. You can't see me? No, but I know where you are. While the Tuka had been talking to the snake goddess, the tunic he had stuffed into the tunnel suddenly unfurled and out poured the snakes. It was like looking at the mouth of a spaghetti maker. The snakes slowly oozed out by the thousands. Give me my eye. I decided it was time to leave. There was a river running through the underground city. I dove in with thousands of snakes in hot pursuit. Tukas are good swimmers, but snakes are pretty good too. The river disappeared underground. He held his breath. Finally, he came shooting out into the open. It was a gigantic waterfall spraying out of the side of a cliff with snakes spewing out behind him. I could not shake the snakes. What did you finally do? I finally gave up. You gave up? I took out the emerald eye and set it on my knapsack. The snakes stopped. They gathered around the eye and the tuka took off. I ran like a windmill. I was a flurry of fleeing tentacles. 
Well, as you can hear, Tim really knocked himself out on this one. Plus, he had a lot of fun. And you can read Tim's complete notes on our website, zbs.org. And you'll find Tim's notes in Meatballs E-Musings. Ruby 7.5, The Tuca's Tales. You can download it now. We'll have the CDs ready around mid-January. This is Meatball Fulton, zbs.org.